1: Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hello. Hey, you guys. Hello, gentlemen. Hey. Hey. Uh, we got a great show for you this week. I talked to uh, someone we've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. I noticed uh, that often... The interviews that would uh, get a lot of traction and move around the Internet were all of these uh, New York magazine interviews uh, that were all uh, I noticed eventually uh, by one interviewer, uh, David Marchese. Uh, and as interviewers, we often like to talk to other interviewers. And uh, this was no exception. Really interesting conversation with him. Um, I think he takes them about as seriously as uh, anyone doing interviews.
2: I love our shows about the art of the interview. I feel like getting tips from our own show is a real added bonus.
1: This is uh, the uh the snake eating its own tail episode. I will say I'm uh I'm annoyed that you got this one first, Aaron. Uh Max did try to steal this booking from me. Uh, I gently uh nudged him aside. <laughs> How about uh who who's bringing us the show this week? Uh you guys it's our friends at MailChimp who are putting together this uh, Read This Summer campaign for the Decatur Book Festival. Shea Serrano of The Ringers is bringing a bunch of authors down there. The book festival is over Labor Day. And uh, they've built a big, beautiful website at ReadThisSummer.com where you can learn all about it and find uh, good books to read. So go there. ReadThisSummer.com. As always, uh, thanks to MailChimp. Uh, when you use them for your mail newsletter needs, you help support this show.
2: And now here's Aaron with David Marchese.
1: Welcome, David Marchese. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm just dripping sweat onto the mic. I feel (laughs) like I just actually had a very surreal experience, Uh which was I was sitting at home reading an interview with you about interviewing in which you described like getting lost and showing up late for interviews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. I just was late for this interview and covered <laughs> yeah. in sweat. So it's I like, feel like you're I, living in the most boring possible version of yeah. Inception. Yeah, I'm living in like a Kafka esque uh, interviewing <laughs> nightmare, but um, I'm very glad to be here. Um, so you write In Conversation, mm-hmm. which is New York Magazine's weekly or bi weekly. I want to talk about those interviews. But I want to know how you got there where are you from and how did you get into media stuff in the first place sure I'm from Toronto Canada and
2: I came to New York to try and work in journalism in 2005 I came here for graduate school at NYU there was a, uh, a program called it may have changed now but it was called at the time cultural reporting and criticism and the main thing that drove me there was that I just always really loved writing and I really loved music and writing about music seemed like a good way of combining those things. So I guess in my fantasy, I envisioned myself as a, um, a music critic initially and pursued that at the beginning and started at uh, my first job was at Salon being a music blogger for them. And then I was hired at Spin and I worked at Spin for six years, which was probably, I would say, two years too long <laughs> Um what years of Spin are we talking about? Uh, it would have been, I guess, two thousand
1: seven to two thousand thirteen, something like that. So you kind of missed the like glory years of like print Rolling Stone Spin dominance. By the time you arrived, Spin was already like on the way towards where Spin is now, like not a print publication. I guess so. I mean, I don't think anybody felt that way well, when curious, they started like, there. Yeah, like, how did like how did that feel at the time? Like, what what was the vibe of well, being think, a music writer yes. in those years? Well, to me, it breaks down
2: into some very specific kind of mini eras. Yeah, I would say for the first three years I was there, I was just very excited to be working in journalism, doing the kind of work that I'd wanted to be doing. So. Um, It just felt fresh and new and fun and the editors i was working with were people that were really supportive and encouraging and and gave me a lot of opportunities and uh, i liked them a lot and then uh, it just became clear to me that the business started to get shaky you know and there were ownership changes and we went through layoffs and it just didn't feel vibrant anymore and i think that's mostly a function of things that were happening on the business side you know that on the editorial side people more smart and and engaged. So that happened. But then at some point I felt like I, um, sort of hit my ceiling for both what I could learn at spin. And I didn't feel like I was growing and my, um, enthusiasm for writing about music. I lost it. I lost it. I just didn't have the drive to find new stuff. And, you know, I felt like sort of the language of music writing and music criticism, I was struggling with ways in which to make it feel fresh to me, you know, and that was probably the last two years I worked there. And then I was hired to go work at Rolling Stone's website. And uh, there's an editor, I'm grateful for her, her name's Karen Gans. She's at the New York Times now. she I, I'd worked with her at Spin and then she hired me to go work at Rolling stone and and for various reasons that i i, I don't really want to get into, I didn't feel like I was a good fit at Rolling Stone. Mm. And I was there for uh, ten months and then got hired at uh, New York and Vulture to edit the culture section there and did that for about two years. And I had maybe this is a, a theme I need to look at, but i got I was feeling burned out by that point. On editing, um, what, what kind of stuff were you editing then? So, I was I was editing uh, the culture section in the yeah. magazine, so you know profiles, um, coming up with gadgety, sort of classic magazine yeah. pieces. You know, that intended to fill a, a third of a page or two thirds of a page, or thinking of you know visual ideas to fill a spread. Um, but then I was given the opportunity to do a long interview with John Oliver, and
1: I want to say this was in two thousand. 15 or 16 i I remember that i think that's probably the first time i noted your name like i would have memorized who you were and um
2: people in new york were pleased with how it turned out yeah and then the following year i did the same in conversation piece this time with louis ck yeah um and similarly people internally were pleased with how it worked and then last year i did uh In conversation with David Letterman, and that one kind of went gangbusters. And around that time, Adam Moss, um, very shrewdly, I would say, (laughs) said that I should make the in conversations a regular thing I do. And it was right around this time also that I'd transitioned from editing to being a writer for them. Yeah. uh, You know, I'd told them that I was kind of burned out editing, and, and they very graciously found a new thing for me to do there. And it took a Couple months before Adam, after the Letterman interview, said the in conversations you've done have all turned out really well. Make it a regular thing. And, and in conversation had been a franchise at New York for a long time, but no one had ever taken it upon themselves or been asked to take it upon themselves to do it regularly. So that was last year, and uh, yeah, here we are.
1: How does it compare? I mean, I, I remember like looking back at some of the stuff you did at Spin, online, maybe not all of it. Mm-hmm. Spend website is difficult for me to navigate at this point, but looking at that and then like an interview that you did this year with Julian Casablancas, it's like a totally different angle at like what music is. What did you ultimately feel was limiting when you were working at music magazines, or what burnt you out as an editor? What, what's different about what you're doing now? I feel like with covering music. I felt like there were sort of
2: limitations for the varieties of stories there were to tell. Yeah. And I realized those limitations, I'm sure had as much to do with my inability to find more creative ways of framing things than than I was able to. But, um, you know, it seemed sort of like there were just a small handful of stories, like band on the rise. Right. Band on the decline. Band coming back from being on the decline. (laughs) And I just got bored of doing that over and over again. And then in terms of the editing, just, you know, editing is, to my mind, in many ways, just so much harder in so many different ways than writing. It's like, not only are you coming up with the ideas, and trying to find someone who can execute them, and then editing the pieces, which can take varying degrees of work, and then working with photo editors and dealing with publicists, and just sort of all the logistics of it. I was just like, this is not how I want to spend my time. And I didn't think I was necessarily even that great at it. But the thing I like about doing the the long interviews with people is that each one feels like a totally unique experience to me. It's not like I go into an interview with Julian Casablancas and already in my mind know, okay, this is the arc of the story that I'm going to tell. And I'm just going to fill that in as as best I can. It's like, I have ideas about things to talk about and what the conversation might entail, but it, it does feel sort of like I'm starting at zero and the conversation can, can go anywhere. And with him, for example, the fun thing for me was that it just became apparent so quickly that he just wanted to talk about politics, uh, which I would not have guessed was what Julian Casablanca wanted to talk about. It's a
1: very like a uh, human thing. Like we've all had the experience of like sitting down at like a Thanksgiving or like a dinner party where there's just one person who's like, let's just like, I can't believe this shit. And you're like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> like you're coming in hot. Yeah. You
2: know? yeah. Yeah. But the fun thing for me is that because there are no parameters for the in conversation pieces I'm just happy to get on that horse and ride it you sure. know? like I want to talk about what they want to talk about right and and the nice thing about it is I think there's the understanding on the part of my editors and the subjects that the conversation doesn't have to be about the current project or in the, again, in the case of Julian Castleblanks, we don't have to talk about uh, uh, the New York rock scene of 2000, which I'm happy to talk about and did bring up. But it could be more than that. It could be anything.
1: OK, so I have a I have a theory about this and you can um, tell me in, in which ways I'm wrong, perhaps, which is people will say of like celebrity reporting, like uh, gossip magazine kind of stuff that it's in some ways been. Subverted by social media where celebrities are able to talk directly to the audience now and most of the people that you interview in, in conversation, you could make that claim about these are people who have big mouthpieces on Instagram and Twitter, a lot of them. But it feels like when you talk to them directly, you're able to take that whole conversation that's happening around their celebrity and bring that into they interview in a way that feels kind of new. It's almost like the whole backstory is already implied in the interview and you're having a somewhat meta conversation at times with them about themselves as a celebrity.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that's often most interesting to me is trying to figure out how much my perception of the subject lines up with both how they feel about themselves and, and how they think they're perceived. I feel like uh, Jeff Goldblum is a good example of that, where he's someone who seems to exist on the internet as kind of this delightful unicorn, yeah. almost a cartoon-like persona. And it seems to me is aware of that on some level and trying to figure out whether or not that jibes with how he thinks of himself is just an interesting thing for me to talk about. And, and I think also often is interesting for the subjects to talk about. I think also in the case of Billy Joel, he, he's the most recent mm-hmm. subject for an in conversation that went up. He's also someone who is keenly aware of how he's been written about and how he's been positioned. And um, that's a situation and a circumstance that It's unique to these public figures, you know, like it's uh, for these people who are in the situation that seems to me to be a semi bizarre one of having people think about who they are and and how they exist in the world. It's interesting to hear their opinions of that and and their perceptions of it. So it feels like a natural thing for me to talk about. (laughs) ¶¶
1: Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor this week, Google Play, which now has audiobooks that you can download and listen to directly using Google Assistant or Chromecast. Full multi-device integration across the whole Google ecosystem. Um, but the part that I like the most about this product is there's no subscription necessary. You can just buy a book when you want to listen to it as an audiobook, which for me is not that often. But sometimes I like to when I'm traveling. Uh, last time I got David Grand's uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which was great. I uh, just bought it loaded it up, listen to it, really easy experience. You probably already have a Google account, uh, so give it a try, and for a limited time, you can get 10 bucks off the first book you buy by visiting g.co slash play slash long form. Again, g.co slash play slash long form. It gets you 10 bucks off your very first audiobook on Google Play, and you'll be supporting the show. Thanks to Google Play. Here I am back with David Marchese. when okay so let's take billy joel as an example because i'm sure this one is like freshest in your mind mm-hmm. as a research task so some point along the way you're like all right we're gonna, we got billy joel he's on the line got to start prepping for billy joel like how do you start unpacking who billy joel is like is this full book reading like intensive record listening
2: well in the instance of Billy Joel, the way I started was uh, to buy Greatest Hits Volumes 1 and 2 when I was about 12 years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> start listening uh, then. Uh, but uh, yeah, it just, you know, it's there. there's a handful of Billy Joel biographies. So right. I read three Billy Joel biographies and I read uh, a book-length uh, musical analysis of his work. And I, I listened to all the studio albums and I bought his box set, which he disowns, but is interesting. He red.
1: disowns his own box set.
2: Yeah, yeah. Because he doesn't control the oh. he doesn't control his recordings. He so disowns sh- the packaging of it. Yeah, not, shit the, just not gets the music on not it. The, well, in that case, he did disown the music because it's all um outtakes and stuff. And he, uh, you okay. know, his opinion is like they were not included on the albums for a reason. But the record company can do what it wants with his material. Um, you know, so listening to all that and, and and Billy Joel's somebody who there's lots of great uh, journalism about. There's a an Amazon, I think it's an Amazon Almost like a single or something. Ninety nine cents by Chuck Klosterman, that I think is called the Billy Joel Essays, where it's a collection of a couple pieces he wrote about Billy Joel. You know, so just reading as much as possible, listening to all the stuff, and as I'm doing all of that, I'm taking notes, copying and pasting interesting uh, sentences or things that have been written about him or things he said and putting it into my own word document, you know, taking snippets of lyrics. And then at the end of that, at some point, I feel like I'm not learning new stuff. Like I sort of have the fullest picture I can get in the time I have. And then from the notes I've taken out of all that material, then I condense that into a couple pages of questions that I then basically memorize. And then, uh, I take that into the interview and go from there.
1: Okay. So I do like the shittiest poor man's version of what you're doing. And most of the people I interview don't have multiple biographies of them written. Mm -hmm. So it's like also like lower quality information, but I've always had the problem of, and I actually like, even in preparing for this interview, I like cut myself off because I was like, if I read some other interview with David where he gives some great anecdote, I'm going to like want to tee him up for that. I guess I wonder, when you've covered this much terrain, how do you cover new terrain in the interview? Is there a, a sense of overload where you know so much that it skews you as an interviewer at all? It's it's kind of
2: interesting that you say that because I've got one coming up that will be published, I think, August 6th. I'm not sure when yep. this will be out. But um, the subject repeats a lot of... She says things she's said before. Yeah. And I had a very hard time getting her off of that yeah but then i also think there's value it's like all right i'm going to give you the best possible version of this person's crazy stories yeah it's like like... i'm going to be the compendium of wild stuff this person says you know so in that instance it's helpful but otherwise i think in terms of the information it really is about a couple things i just want to be as familiar and therefore respectful with the person's career as I can be because I think demonstrating that is going to get them to open up in ways that they might not if I was just apparently less familiar with it. And then I also want to be able to have all that information as cards to play. If the subject brings up certain things that I can then say like, oh, this relates to, you know, I'm just going to make this up off the top of my head, but you know, like this relates to uh in the case of Billy Joel, like we didn't start the fire or something. So is there something you can tell me about that? You know, just so then if I sense the conversation going in a particular way, I can use the information I have to nudge it further in that way or to, to get the subject more excited a- about something and go further into it than maybe they have before. So I, you know, I am conscious of people not repeating themselves, but I... I sort of think the benefits of having all that information far outweigh whatever negatives there might be.
1: Do you have techniques if you feel like someone is going into a greatest hit story to try to push past that? Is there like a way that you kind of acknowledge that you know where they're going and you want to steer them or anything like that?
2: Yeah, yeah. And actually, sometimes I'm I'm a little hesitant about the uh, idea of talking about techniques because I don't want it to sound like... um, I'm manipulating people. That's it. I have a like a lot of techniques. Which I am. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a nice manipulation. It's like a yeah. massage well, rather I mean, than being a, pushed. You're you're uh, trying
1: to mutually get the best interview, right, Between yeah.
2: them. Um, but it can be a number of things. It can range from my saying, "Oh, you've talked about that before. Let's not talk about that." Or you know, sometimes you know, in the case of again, Billy Joel, and this one is just freshest in my mind, you know, there would be instances where he would start to talk about something and I would complete his thought because I recognized the story he was telling or the sort of the general framework of the anecdote that he was giving. And, you know, I think in that instance, he's not going to keep talking about it if I say like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about, Right. you know, um, it's all always done respectfully and, you know, I'm not cutting people off and giving them the hook or anything like that. But, um, Yeah, there are various ways to signal that you don't that I don't want to talk about something.
1: Most of the people that you're interviewing are older, Mm -hmm. basically. They're people who've like been on the top of the mountain and are like lodged enough in our cultural memory that you would still love to read an interview with them at 60, 70 years old. Some of them younger, but like a lot of them are people who've kind of like later into their career. Do you find that there's a specific quality to asking people about different eras of the past versus the present like where do you focus your interview in? like when you're with a Billy Joel are you want like do you want to talk about like Billy Joel now Billy Joel then how Billy Joel has like been feeling this whole time well I think when people talk about the past it's an area that
2: they've thought about more and probably have been asked about more and therefore are more likely to have kind of set in stone stories they tell about those things. Yeah. Um, So it can be a little bit trickier to get people to tell you new things about subjects they've probably been asked about a million times. But um, I would say that I very much hope that the conversation with some subtle direction for me is going to be a dynamic thing. And will go in the direction that it is organically wanting to go. So I don't think so much about, well, do I want to have Quincy Jones talk about the past or the present? Or, you know, do I want Isabella Rossellini to talk about the 90s or whatever? My hope is that they'll dictate by their enthusiasm, what is going to be most fruitful for me to talk to. I realize with the subjects I'm talking to, you know, there are certain areas that I think people are going to want to know about. And I try and hit those areas in the conversation. But for me, it's most fun and most interesting. And I think most revealing if you can sort of just fish around for what they're eager to talk about and get into that stuff. And that's also often the stuff that they haven't talked about a million times. You know, like Isabella Rossellini, for example, has interesting things to say about, I think she's in graduate school now at Hunter College for like animal behavior or something like that. And just hearing her talk about like, you know, animal evolution or her chicken farm, like that to me is more interesting and revealing than, you know, hearing her talk about blue velvet for the millionth time or something like that. So, you know, I do have a a larger framework in my mind of places where I think the conversation could, or in some circumstances should go but kind of within that I want it to be a fluid thing where
1: it's moved mostly by what the subject seems interested in are you so I do this show and we're talking and what people will be listening to is more or less a literal representation of this conversation with editing are you thinking a lot about how what someone is saying is going to read on the page like I know that these are pretty heavily edited like something like 15,000 words down to four or six. So I guess I'm wondering like, how much you need to guide people into something that prints well, or is it pretty much like good conversation, sounds good on paper?
2: During the conversation itself, I don't think at all about whether or not something's going to read well or work in print. kind of my ideal situation for the conversations is basically a conversation like the one we're having now, or the kind of conversation I would have with a friend or somebody I meet who, um, it turns out I have something in common with, and then you can just talk for two hours or something.
1: We're in a very quiet bar.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I, I feel like, um, just focusing on the conversation as it's happening is the best strategy for me to get the best stuff. Mm-hmm. but then of course like you're saying afterwards it's heavily edited yeah but uh, but I, I never feel like there's a disconnect between you know sort of what the person said and how it reads or ac- occasionally things that sounded good in person or were dependent largely uh, on the speaker's inflection or something like that those things can get lost a little bit when you're you know then translating them to something
1: that's written out but um, I always often thought like, The tone in print is always pretty blunt. Mm -hmm. Like you can't use satire in exactly the same way you can like as a comedian in a normal setting. I I can imagine that some of these things read a little differently on on the page than they do uh, in the middle of a flowing conversation. And that's context also like there's a difference when you can pull quote out. One question and one answer or maybe just an answer or something like that Um, Mm -hmm. is that something that you have to be sensitive to in the editing of like oh this might sound weird if I don't include this context or
2: yeah I have a few thoughts about that you know sometimes I've been surprised after the interviews are are published when people have said things to me like you know that seemed combative or uh, Mm. you know you know, how are you comfortable pushing people like that? Mm. And uh, I think that's, um, I don't know if there's a way to avoid it, but it, maybe it's a, a misreading of the actual dynamics of the interview because, yep. you know, I just the type of person I am, I wouldn't be comfortable and I don't want to go and do like a gotcha or a <laughs> wag my finger at, at someone, right. you know? Yeah. And so during the course of the conversation, I think things get to a point where both I feel comfortable saying to someone, like, no, I think you're wrong about that. And it doesn't feel combative. Yeah. But I think it can read like it was combative or or I was trying to be provocative. And it never, to me, feels like that in the conversation as it's happening. So there's that. And then I am sensitive to the fact when I'm going through the transcript and shaping something into the final piece to certain phrases or, or things that the subject has said that I know... Or suspect will get attention, and I, I have mixed feelings ab- about that because I never, I feel bad if people get in trouble <laughs> for things they've said to me. I, it's not a nice feeling, but also I'm choosing to run the stuff, you right. know. But there's nothing I can do about it. You know, it's like my my job. I feel like and my responsibility is to come up with the best stuff for our readers and um, the best and most honest representation of the conversation, you know, and it's, I'm both not going to do any sort of editing tricks to make something seem more sensational than it was, but I'm also not going to try and dampen something because I suspect somebody might get in trouble for what they've said. So I I don't know the dynamics of all that are, um, I find them, it's something I think about and,
1: and often find difficult to manage. Well, it's, we're in a new era. I mean, um, Twitter's been a dark place for me over the last year of my life, but they've got the Twitter moments now and these things will bubble up and I'll click on them and then I'll start reading the quote. And I don't know, this is from a 6,000 word interview in New York magazine, which has you know this, this and this context. And I feel both like the longer form interview format encourages that kind of candidness from the interviewee. And simultaneously, a lot of these people are people who we sort of celebrate for being outspoken, outrageous, and willing to say provocative things. And then the meaning of that has changed a lot in the last couple of years. Um, And you're really at the forefront, in my opinion, um, because you are often the first big interview for these people for several years. How has that journey been for you? Like does this is it emotional for you when someone's getting beat up on Twitter for something that they've said in one of your interviews? Uh,
2: yeah, I feel bad about it. I yeah. feel I feel um, you know, I'd say uh, there's no no part of me that's rubbing my hands with glee yeah. at at seeing something that I've contributed to being used in a negative way. Um I I don't know that I have a good answer or or way of talking about this other than the fact I am sensitive to it and, and I have deeply mixed feelings about it. And, you know, I think there are instances where I do try and show people in the best possible light and, and give them opportunities to, and by that, I mean, give them opportunities to explain what they're saying. And, you know, and like I said, it's never like I'm springing a gotcha. And, and, you know, I always, when I, ahead of publishing something that i think might cause problems for someone you know i i give a heads up to the publicist and say like hey your person said this you know they might get some guff for it but you know i I just talk even talking about it now i feel like you know i i'm probably at least partly full of shit like i'm doing the thing you know
1: well i don't Um, think that necessarily means you're foolish like i push back like, sl- i'm
2: culpable is, is what i'm saying it's not well, well you know. yeah
1: but i mean look you're not um there's no false pretenses at all to what you're doing and i think additionally um i appreciate the longer form interview format because i think that even if someone says something outrageous they've like really gotten to like it's an outrageous opera not an outrageous like uh side quip you yeah know? it's not some, something someone said in the airport to tmz it's at least someone who's like showing the fullness of themselves
2: yeah it's, it's you know I, there's a couple there are a couple things to me that are interesting in play about this subject in particular where you know on the one hand i think i don't know for sure i, I suspect part of the reason some of my pieces I have done well or people enjoy reading them is that they do convey a sense of the subject as a person. Yeah. It's talking about how they really think and feel about given subjects. And maybe I don't know, but maybe that's not a common thing anymore, you know, to hear uh, notable people, celebrities, cultural figures talk in what feels like a A human, relatively unfiltered way, and I think that's a good thing. And then when I see people do that, and then you know get slapped online for something they said, I think like, well, I don't. Don't we want people to be talking in insightful, introspective ways without a filter? Isn't wouldn't that be more interesting to everyone? So the impulse when somebody says something provocative or you know um, contentious. To be like fuck you shut up you know it's like well would you rather all the interviews be bland and they never said anything you yeah know? because we can there's plenty of those we can go back to that um so there, there's that side of it and then also in like a in very much a professionally uh uh self preservational way i think like ah, i don't want people to not let their clients talk to me because they're right. worried they'll get in trouble you know and and thank goodness that hasn't happened and thank goodness you know, even in the instances where someone has gotten in trouble for something they've said to me, across the board, every time that's happened, the publicist and in some cases, even the subjects themselves have come back to me and said, We know this is not your fault. You know, yeah. like they understand that it's things getting taken out of context or people reacting in, in sort of exaggerated ways. Um, all of which is to say that um, I don't want people to be afraid of the in conversation. And also, I do think it's important to note that. I've probably done, I don't know, over the last two years or something in the neighborhood of 20 of these pieces.
1: Talk- oh, is that it really? In wow. It, You've it, got well, a very high hit percentage. Uh, so I, I thought it was like one a week. Okay. So you're like out of 20, I would say five to seven of these have like entered the cultural conversation around the person where like I heard about it outside of like mm-hmm. being a long form.org editor. Right. Like-
2: um, but I, what I was trying to say was that, um, you know, maybe three or four times the subject has gotten shit for something. Yeah. Like, usually, the vast majority of times, people are like, we like this. The response to it is great. And so, this small handful of sort of uh, negatively tinged ones is a small handful. So, I don't want it to make it seem like every other conversation I'm having, somebody's like, you know what? I think baby murder is great. You know, yeah. Like, that's not happening. That no, no. Happen. No, I understand. So.
1: Well, I mean, look conversation is a natural like inhibition lower. Like the longer you talk to someone, there's a reason like therapy works where you just go into a room and talk to a stranger for an hour, which is like at minute 45 people are like a different person than they are at minute one. And so you do 90 minute interviews.
2: I do at least 90 minutes in person. And then a couple days later I get people back on the phone for a minimum of half an hour to revisit things or bring up things that I either didn't bring up in the moment or our responses to things that they said that I feel like need clarification or I'm more curious about so yeah so it's a minimum of two hours total of talking that's, to the person. that's two
1: therapy sessions right there I mean that's a lot of uh, runway ahead of you
2: yeah and and um, I'm aware and thankful for the amount of time I have and and I do try and use that time not always, but I often try and use that time strategically where particularly if I'm talking to someone who it feels is either taking a while to warm up to the conceit of the end conversation, like yeah. if it takes them a minute to realize like, oh, this is a different kind of conversation yeah. than a 10 minute junket conversation.
1: <laughs> I can't give one sentence responses.
2: Right, or I'm just gonna ask you like, <laughs> what do you mean by that? You yeah. know? Or if it seems like people are kind of on autopilot a little, yeah. I'll use 20 minutes very conscientiously to try and get them out of that. And I I couldn't do what I do if I only had 30 minutes, you know, then I couldn't spend 15 or 20 minutes just trying to move the conversation to a place where I feel like the, now the subject is talking candidly. So that amount of time is necessary for what, what is, I, I feel for what I do.
1: What are the primary um, use cases for the 30 minute callback? Like, what do you have to ask the second time generally? You know uh, i can give you examples they
2: i did um a piece with dave matthews i think in ran in may or june i don't remember um and during the first conversation he had alluded in some fairly provocative ways to issues with drinking and in the moment i you know i think i asked one or two follow-up questions but he said something i'm paraphrasing i'm not going to get this exactly right but he said something to the effect of you know by anyone's definition I'm a raging alcoholic which is not something he'd ever said before and so during the follow-up I just felt like I had to ask him like what do you mean by that like do you that okay. seems like
1: one of those statements where the tone matters a lot.
2: Right. You know, I, I actually think in the moment he said that and I laughed. You
1: know? Yeah. <laughs> I well, like, I was like, it could be like, uh, I'm a raging alcoholic or it'd be like, ah, I guess I'm a raging alcoholic. Yeah, what are it, you going to do? And his tone was somewhere in between yeah. what
2: you just did. And also, I don't know. It's just like, I'm sure the laughter was a, a reaction to some tension, you know, when yes. somebody says something to you, like, you know, I don't know what to say, you know, yes. so I laughed I and mean, I felt it was kind of bad about laughing, but, uh, <laughs> uh, But I think then in the follow-up, I just asked him, like, is there more context you want to give about that? Like, just tell me more about that. (laughs) Because I just felt like it was... What does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, Both because I felt like the conversation needed that clarification. And also I felt it was fair to him to let him address that again, rather than it just be some thing that maybe he'd remember and said or maybe not, and then he'll see it, you know? So the follow-up call is often asking people to further explain or go into more depth about something that gave me pause from the first conversation that in the moment I was not able to formulate a useful follow-up question for and then often it's for lower stakes stuff too like you know sometimes I I realize I'll just have forgotten to ask like very basic things like I'm just making this up but like what was your first movie or, or like when did you start doing that? You yeah, know? because I sort of uh, get more excited about the bigger ideas or um, so it's generally those two things is what the follow up call for is for kind of like that harder, higher stakes questions and like sort of the uh, the mortar to fill in kind of basic stuff.
1: Is that uncomfortable when you say, hey, uh, Dave, remember when you say you were a raging alcoholic in a somewhat joking manner, you know, when we were kind of vibing and, you know, we like had a trust built between us x time ago like let's come back to that it's slightly uncomfortable i think the good
2: thing about the follow-up call is that i feel like the person knows me a little bit and has a sense of my demeanor and knows and even if they don't remember the specifics presumably remembers the parameters of the conversation the kind of conversation it was yeah so it that follow-up call conversation is starting from a more intimate place than the first conversation is starting from. So I feel more comfortable asking about difficult stuff because we've already had 90 minutes where I was asking about personal stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's not like this out-of-the-blue thing. But, yeah, I get nervous knowing that I feel obligated to ask somebody about a, a subject that they might not want to talk about. But it's probably less nervous than I would be in some other situation asking that question.
1: It doesn't seem like an accident that stuff like what you're doing is doing really well at the same time as people are doing more and more podcasts. Celebrities are doing more of their own podcasts, celebrities interviewing celebrities on podcasts. Um, There seems to be something of a flight towards the verbatim form. Like in conceiving of this, um, why do you think people have connected with, with these interviews so much?
2: I don't, I don't feel like I have any particular insights into the work I do as being part of like a larger shift or phenomenon in any way. I just, you know, I think people like to hear people talk and are interested in conversation and and have always been. That's my my sense of it. But, um, I sort of my theories for why my stuff has maybe done well. I, I do think it is relatively rare for people like celebrities who have things to lose by talking candidly to, especially in this day and age when things can get blown out of proportion or, you know, you what people start to jump on on Twitter can mean you'll lose your job or, or uh, you know, you won't get the role that maybe you've been cast in or, you know, you your can stock just... stock will shed billions of dollars of value. Right, you can really step in it in a way that I don't think you could have 15 years ago maybe Uh, not even five years ago maybe not even five years ago and then people sometimes say or there's the idea that you know celebrities now through social media have an unfiltered um avenue to their fans or to the public but it's disingenuous to think that's unfiltered you know it's extremely filtered probably more filtered than it was when they were going through the media in some ways so I, i i do think you know i hope that the pieces i do are showing people for who they are and what their enthusiasms are and what they think about subjects that they maybe don't often get asked about. Um, um, I don't know. This is like a totally inconsequential thing to bring up, but, you know, I've, I've asked a couple subjects. Like, we somehow got on the subject of the band Yes, you know? Uh, and I don't, you know, like Dave Matthews is not getting asked about the band Yes in other conversations, or or, or Billy Joel is not. But they, they both had enthusiasm for that and yeah. we're interested in talking about it or you know billy joel was interested in talking about um you know like his, his father's history which is something that i'm sure he's been asked about much less than well, who was piano man really about you know yeah so i think being able to show what people are like and what what interesting people are like and and what people who other people are interested in are like is appealing and i think uh you know not singular but maybe still relatively rare and and You know, I think that's why my stuff has done okay. And, you know, I think it's entertaining. And I think the Q&A format on a phone, for example, is very easy to read. Yeah. You know, to scroll through. Um, And the way questions and answers are sort of modular does make it easier for people to pick things out and share things um, for better or worse. So I think there are a few factors, but I think the number one factor I would hope is that they just feel like human conversations between two interested people who are interested, at least in some degree, in each other and in having an open conversation. And that's when I think they work best.
1: I think it's strange, I keep using the word celebrity and I don't mean it in a pejorative context at all. I think that the self-presentation of celebrity is no longer uh, just for movie stars. It's the whole arts, but it's also business. It's Elon Musk. It's also politics. It's Donald Trump. These are all people who um, this sort of interview style self-presentation is often the most we know about them. It's where all the ideas are. Um, well, I, I realize in talking to you today,
2: I think I, I've used phrases like, you know, cultural figures. Yeah. Because something about the idea of being a celebrity interviewer is yeah. so... Off-putting to me, yeah. Even though I know it's that's what I am, it's my job is I talk to famous people. But like I, you know, I think also sort of my um, skepticism or you know, in some senses, even disdain for the idea of celebrity is yeah. also useful for me in my job. Yeah, because I just think I go into the interview and it's just like you, Jeff Goldblum or uh, Billy Joel or David Lynch or whoever yeah. are a person I'm interested in. I don't care that you're famous. Like that's not appealing to me or I don't, I'm not worried about you not liking me Mm. or I don't want you to be my friend because you're, you know, sometimes the fame is interesting in how it speaks to how they're perceived and things like that. But just the idea of a famous person, I don't care about, um, which, you know, I'm probably, deep down in my mind, I probably deeply care about it. Other ones <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, I'm not a little bit embarrassed about that possibility.
1: How do you get around, like, wanting people to like you or at least not be like... Like, I imagine sometimes some of your responses, the combative thing was interesting because I was like, yeah, I, you know, when you're like with uh, Julian Casablancas, so you're kind of like, eh, I need to push back here a little bit, you know? And I'm like, it's slightly combative, like, or not... Combative is the wrong word. It's slightly like... I'm going to tell you what I really think Mm -hmm. rather than what would probably like keep us on the friendliest terms. Is that a skill you had to build up or do you have a natural disdain for caring about that kind of thing?
2: Um, I would say it's probably a skill I, I built up to the point where now I, I really don't care if the person doesn't like me. And often I know that any dislike might make for a livelier conversation. You know, it's not, yeah. a, I don't view it as a problem if somebody has an issue with me or, yeah. or a question I ask. You know, I, I've i told this st- story before, but very early in my career, I did an interview with Lou Reed, a long interview for Spin. Yes. Uh, I want to say this was 2007 or 2008. Yes. Um, just a deeply unpleasant experience where he was belittling and took issue with just about every question I asked. And, you know, it was just, You know he's famous for being hard on interviewers and he lived up to his reputation but you know can i just tell a side a side story about that is that so we were doing it at a the interview was happening at a restaurant in the west village you know and he's his you could just tell his whole perception of me was basically as a human-sized worm (laughs) Uh, and then at some point we were sitting outside and and robin williams comes up on a bicycle And like they did that thing that I think celebrities are obligated to do, where they're like, oh, you're famous, I'm famous. We have to talk to each other and pretend we're friends, you know? Yeah. But but in that three minutes talking to Robin Williams on his bicycle, Lou Reed was uh, gracious and asked Robin Williams questions and seemed interested. And then Robin Williams rode away and it immediately went back to hi, worm, you know? Like, it was just he, he was so clearly a thing that he felt like he was doing or that he was doing with journalists or a journalist. but anyway, so in that conversation with Lou Reed, it was, I felt small and I felt like I was not doing a good job. And, you know, then I put the piece together and the piece reads really well, yeah. you know? And so I learned a couple of things. I learned both that conflict is not your enemy in terms of putting together a compelling piece. And at some point it clicked during the interview, it clicked in my mind that, it was not about me. You know, Lou Reed's reaction was a reaction to, it was about his self-conception is about what ideas he has about journalists and what journalists should be asking about. So it was not personal. So it allowed for a certain degree of disengagement emotionally on my part that, um, I think I've held onto. So, you know, it doesn't get my back up if somebody takes issue with a, a question I ask, or if they're you know sort of interpersonal demeanor suggests that they don't like me um but you know i will say at the risk of sounding self-aggrandizing i'm generally i think i'm pretty likable you know it doesn't it it does it's very rare that it happens where i feel like uh i'm not able to get to some place of mutual comfort in the conversation you know i don't think i come off as threatening or pedantic or didactic or anything like that so but if that were to happen I, i don't care
1: do you think that um Like you've been doing this. I can't believe I just
2: referred to myself as likable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've been doing this for uh, 10-ish years. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you see your interviews as any kind of an oeuvre that will ever be read in the future together, do you think? Or each of these, their own island? I think about them
2: as individual pieces. uh, the, uh, The only way I ever think about it as a larger body of work is sometimes I think about certain types of people, you know, like I've never really spoken to, maybe I'm forgetting somebody, but I don't think I've ever really spoken to like a classic, you know, like uh, Hollywood leading lady or leading man, you know, like, um, you know, like I was a big Paul Newman fan, you know, somebody in that vein, or like, I guess a Clint Eastwood now, you know, somebody like that. So I do think those are sort of holes that I would like to fit. And I, I do also think about, um, demographics you know yeah I'm limited in that I can only do the interviews with people who agreed to be interviewed yeah you know so I have a, a list of possible subjects that's hundreds of names long you know yeah have, out of those hundreds of names all of whom I've contacted in some way or another you know 20 have said yes you know the the
1: so only 20 out of hundreds Wow. yeah
2: yeah so I can't program it in the way I want to but I I am conscious of I don't want it to just be 60 year old white man. right i really
1: don't would you do like a 22 year old soundcloud rapper well that's um <laughs> that's kind of a specific question but you know well the the i would say
2: probably not but not for ha- any reasons having to do with that person being a soundcloud rapper more to do with you know i think the conversations work best when there's a longer career and a longer life to talk about yeah. because then it just opens up the amount of things that you can discuss. And people have had, have presumably more ideas about the world and about their work and have seen more ups and downs. So for the long conversation, I just feel like talking to somebody who's been around a, a while, you know, I, I've recently started to think like people in their 60s is actually really the sweet spot for whatever reason, you know, like that seems to yield the best stuff. But uh, uh, I thought also people I think are less, you know, it's like they have a sense of who they are, you know, they're less, they're just more comfortable talking about who they are and what they believe in and what they think about the world. than, you know, a 22 year old might be.
1: I feel like the, the older people get, it seems like there's like this like second life where you're just like, like literally, I don't even care if people get mad at me, like who cares?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the Quincy Jones interview is the best example of that. How old is Quincy Jones? I I want to say he's 84 or 85. You know, like he just did not give a shit. He was going to say what he was going to say. Or I I did an interview with um, John Cleese, who I want to say is 77 maybe. And same thing. It's, you know, his life is not going to change based on what he says in an interview. So he's going to tell you what he really thinks about political correctness or, you know, British politics or whatever we talked about, you know, so it's, it's just,
1: that is the sweet spot. Do you like worry about like your taste aging out? Like as someone who started as a music writer, like these people, a lot of people you interview are like celebrities that are like tuned to my own heart. I think we're of like a similar generation. Um, Where would that go in 10 or 20 years? It will just be another generation of them, you think?
2: If I'm in a position where (laughs) I'm still working as a journalist (laughs) in 10 or 20 years. Like the aging out of my possible subject will be the, you know, that'll be a problem I'm glad to to entertain. Uh, uh, No, I don't really worry about it. Like I said, you know, I have a list of hundreds of names. Like there's no shortage of of people, um, people who I think would be interesting to talk to.
1: Right on. Uh, Well, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, Thanks to David for doing this interview. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Tyler McGlossky. Thank you to the people who make this show possible. MailChimp and Pit Writers at the University of Pittsburgh, thanks to them. Uh, you can always get in touch with us by sending an email, uh, podcast at longform.org. You can find all of our episodes at longform.org slash podcast. We really appreciate the listening and we'll see you next week.
0: Why do you run?